Um, they're great mugs and um, you can think of us, so we hiked them here for you because really I want to thank you. It's a Friday night. We know it's a Friday night. Um, workforce analytics, you think Friday night, what do I want to do at the end of my work week? Let's, let's talk, you know, workforce analytics somewhere over here in Boston. Yeah, sign me up. So um, when we were talking to Vishal, um, we were saying, you know, you've got to do something on workforce analytics. Please give us the day. I know that this is, you know, there's going to be a team of folks that will show up. And so I really applaud each one of you. This is awesome. And I, I really see you as thought leaders in this space. So thank you for coming out. So again, thank you, everyone. And I would love this to be interactive. I think I have about an hour, but it'll take what it takes. It might be less. But please interrupt. This is an unconference so you don't have to you know wait till the end or whatever it's more like a meetup group so really happy to be here and I think when we get to the panel discussion later I am so happy with the people we were able to reach out to that agreed to be part of this panel and talk about workforce analytics and I think there's a lot that people don't understand about workforce analytics and what we wanted to do um, you know, it's like workforce, analytics, and we were trying to think and look at the people that signed up, and it's kind of half HR and half analytics folks. And so in terms of thinking about the presentation, what I wanted to do was see if we could kind of fit as many people as possible. And so for some of the folks, you might go, wow, she's sort of repeating some things, and other folks, you might go, way, that's over my head. So there's a little bit of both in there, but just hang in there with me if you would. So I wanted to start out. Um, I met Vishal and his team actually at a meetup group where they were talking about recruiting data scientists and we happen to have done a lot of work, a quantitative work, because everybody's saying, you know, what is it about a data scientist that, you know, makes them special? Are they a unicorn? And we said, you know what, we have this ability to measure um, top performers and people. I bet there's a better way we can do that. And so I had presented on, on how we actually do that. Um, tonight I'm going to be talking about using the same data science approach for um, reducing employee churn or employee attrition. Um, really helping you understand from a workforce analytics perspective that what we're talking about is being able to use analytics much in the same way that people do in the customer side and other areas. So we're going to specifically tonight be focusing on a case study with employee churn. American Express. I'm not giving an ad for American Express, but um, you know, we came here, we parked here. Um, we're probably going to use our American Express card to pay for the bill when we are done with parking. Um, all the rest of the talent analytics folks here tonight all have their corporate American Express card. And several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, they announced something new. And at the end of the year, it was a roll up. And they said, hey, you know, free for you, we're going to give you this data we've been collecting and you can see what your spending was. And what the categories were and we're like, ah, you know, there's a lot that was spent on, you know, food and beverage and entertaining. Maybe there was some spent on marketing. Maybe there was some spent on something else. We're like, that is amazing insight. Some of it was scary. Some of it had to happen. It was really good to get over that hump. We're like, that's unbelievable. You know, fast forward to today, and we can get that almost everywhere, right? You can go to your bank account, you can get to, you know, Visa, Master, you know, whatever. I can do it on QuickBooks, it doesn't matter, it's there. But we really want for the vendors and the people that are working with us to step it up. You know, step it up again, give us something more. And this really does come back to workforce analytics, I promise you, okay? So what they could do, you know, they could say, ooh, what's this cool new feature that we could do? Oh, maybe there's a better user interface on our website, and all those things are important. But the only way that they're going to be able to start to make a connection to give better data to me 
Um, like they might be able to serve up a coupon and say, hey Greta, here's you know, a coupon to buy a printer. Well, maybe I don't have a printer and then that's silly and it's wasted time. So what can they do to start really stepping it up to me so that the data that's delivered to me is more interesting and provides more value? And the only way to do that is for them to sit there and think, and I'm sure they had this meeting, wait a second, she's using her American Express at Staples. Huh, I wonder what that would be like to combine the American Express buying data with the Staples data, with the other data, and all the other vendors and places where I connect. And so what ends up happening is you have something that looks like this. People that are you know, going to Staples and then maybe Hewlett Packard sells their printers at Staples through American Express and they're all sharing data and they're all going, wait, I bet it would be a really big benefit to all of us to try to connect all this data together. That's really the only way that you can start to you know, get additional, additional, additional value. I see a t-shirt at some of these conferences and they talk, I forget how it ends, but they say we torture our data until it, what's it? We'll sell you whatever. Until it confesses, I think. Is what, yeah, whatever it wants until it confesses or whatever. If you have a certain individual data set, you can squeeze it, you can squeeze it, you can torture it, you can do more with it. Come on, I want more insight. At the end of the day, there's only a certain amount of insight in that single data set. And people are realizing that, and that's why they say, we need to go out, we need to start doing different things, right? They're not doing it for their own good, they're doing it because they want to provide you with more data. So, when I go and walk around my city block, <laughs> right, this actually is in the Czech Republic, but I thought it was really beautiful, um, so with my credit card, you know, and I'm walking around there, um, and I go maybe, you know, um, I'm applying for a loan, and I go in and I say, I'm gonna show up and see was my mortgage approved? And they're like, voila, your mortgage was approved. Well, I hardly use them for anything. Maybe I don't use them for anything at all. How did they possibly know that my mortgage would be approved or that I was predicted to you know, pay on time? How would they know that? Hmm, they connected with other people's data, right? Maybe I've worked with them for maybe a year, but there's other things. Maybe they get a credit report, they find from other areas, they pull that in, they combine it, and they make a prediction. Okay, and I love that. I'm like, oh, that's great, my mortgage is approved. I continue walking down the street, and maybe I go into my apartment here that's really cute on the second floor, and I'm logging into Amazon, and they say, oh, you know, you'll probably like these books. And I'm like, how would they know that? I've never bought that kind of book. That's really, you know, some of them are weird, but some of them are spot on. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I do like mysteries, just exactly this kind, police procedurals or whatever. I know, now you think I'm really weird. But they teed it up. How did they possibly know that? Where did they get that? They were connecting, yes, to what was happening inside of Amazon, but there was other things that I'm doing as well. You know, I continue on and maybe I have a doctor's appointment and they say, you know what, your risk is high for diabetes. And I'm like, how could they possibly know that? Well, maybe they know in my family that diabetes runs in there. Maybe that came from somewhere else. We have no idea. There's a big mixing of data that's happening. And maybe I'm paying for all of these with my American Express card also. Probably not my corporate card, but maybe my other American Express card. You get the idea, I'm into Staples and they say, not only here's a coupon for ink, they say, here's a coupon for Epson printer ink. I'm like, wait a second, you generated this right as I'm standing at the register, how could you possibly know? Because if they would give me Hewlett Packard ink, I would think, that's silly, I don't own an HP, I own an, uh, an Epson printer. You know, and so I'm like, wow, that's really valuable, I'll use this the next time, okay? And then the final one that I have, I think you get the, the gist. You know, Greta, you should get a flu shot. 
Like, wait a second, am I all of a sudden in that category of pe the older people that are probably gonna get the flu? You know, what did they tie that to? How did they come to that conclusion, okay? What we're talking about is the mixing of data, okay? And how people are able to pull data sets together to get additional value that if they sat and looked at just that one individual American Express card and my buying patterns, there's absolutely no way that information could come to light no matter how much you torture that individual data set that's there. And this has a lot to do with workforce analytics. Okay. Before I jump into workforce analytics, I want to talk about one of the supremely important areas when you're talking about predicting or trying to sort of um, get additional insight from data sets. And that is for the folks, like I said in the back, you know, in the prior slide, to say, okay, we teed up something for her. We gave her an Epson, you know, ink coupon. Did she buy the ink? And did she buy Epson ink? Because if I bought Hewlett Packard ink, they would want to know that and, and go, really? What's that mean? Does she have two printers? Did she have a, you know? But you would want that data to come back in inside, so the next time they're really trying to figure out, and their models would be getting wiser and wiser. They really need to know something, and this is an important concept of understanding the outcomes so that their model as they're looking at the data is really modeling the correct thing so that they can try to keep you as a customer. Okay. Did I get the mortgage? Yes. Did I do my payments on time? That's what they want to know, right? Oh, is she paying? You know, so what are they going to do? They're going to go to the credit you know, scores and see if all of a sudden that bank is saying, nope, she didn't make oh, well, next time I go for another mortgage, they're going to say no. It's not just a point in time. People are constantly feeding back the outcomes. Outcomes are extremely important when you're working with workforce analytics. And the point that I want to make is there's a lot of people out there saying we do workforce analytics, and they don't talk about outcomes. And if they're not talking about outcomes and how we can tell whether your outcomes are changing from one thing to another, I wouldn't work with them if I were you, because outcomes matter. Okay. Did I get the disease? Did I like the book? Why do you think you know, Amazon likes you to rate you know, your books? Well, yeah, it's great because other people can read and say, oh, you know, it got you know, four stars out of five and that makes you buy. But it also goes right into their models. Well, Greta didn't like that book. She rated it badly, so maybe she doesn't like the author, maybe she doesn't like this, whatever. It goes right back into their engine. They're not gonna tee that up for you again because they want you to buy, okay? It's just this closed cycle loop that goes back in to help your models, your workforce analytics models, or the data science so it completes the loop. You have to complete the loop to say what happened once we made this recommendation. That's the important, you know, the last one there. Tracking to outcomes matters immensely to data science. Now, what does this have to do with workforce analytics? I'll stop talking about American Express and credit cards and all that sort of thing, but um, what we have a lot of times inside of our organizations is something that people call a system of record. Um, maybe it's in your HRIS system, somebody mentioned at the back, or your talent management system, or your workforce system, or whatever it is that you use. And really upon intake or somebody being hired or maybe even just applying for the job, what you're going to get is, you know, this is where the resume came in, this is their birthday, their social security number, when they were hired, what their salary was, who they report to, you know, what their performance review was, and pretty much every other activity-based employee-related thing that happens in their life at the organization. And you gather a ton of data about the employee. And a lot of what's happening today on workforce analytics is that people take this single data set and they torture it and they say, okay, you know, what can we find, just like the American Express people, out of just the data that's here? You're probably going to start to see a pattern because, 
you know, I'm ho hoping to see, you know, there's great data here, but can I predict if you're a good fit in the role just from this data? No, you need to start combining it. So workforce analytics, if you want to take it to the next level, when you want to start giving even more value back to the organization, and there's a lot of CEOs that have spent a lot of money on HRIS systems, and people have spent a lot of time putting that data inside of there, only to be able to, at the end of the year, report on last year's attrition, just like the American Express card, right? Oh, last year, this is what your attrition was, 20%. And you're like, great, what can we do about it? Nothing. What will next year's attrition be? I don't know. Who's going to be leaving? No idea. But last year it was worse, it was better. And so it's a good start. You need to do this, but you want to take it to the next level. Okay. Um, workforce analytics so far is a lot about optimizing organizational layout. Okay, you've got to do that. You absolutely have to do that. It's very important that you need to do that, but it's kind of the first very solid building block for moving forward. Okay. Many of these we would call megatrends, okay? Last year we did this. This year there's going to be, you know, we're not going to have nearly enough sales reps or the economy is going to be doing this and therefore we need to be prepared for that. You absolutely have to be doing that. It's the cornerstone of what your business is doing, okay? But at the end of the day, if I walk in and apply for a job, can these megatrends tell me whether I'm going to you know, a, the kind of person that's going to perform or if I'm going to, you know, be hired and then go, I hate my job and then leave. It doesn't have any kind of granularity like it did on the American Express card of being able to tee up and say, here's, a, you know, a coupon for an Epson printer, Inc. You know, that's pretty granular and I just don't want all the people doing customer analytics to be having all the fun. It seems like we should be able to use that same modeling and the same approach with employees. Okay. We need to get beyond megatrends. So the next level where we need to turn this dial up in a really big way, and I think if you're familiar with HR at all, and actually this happens in marketing and other areas where everybody's like, I want to have a seat at the table. I think HR has the opportunity to run the table. I really do, because they have the care and feeding and the opportunity to say, you know, I can really impact and turn that ROI up. Um, on the single largest expense of any organization in the world, which is the employees, and that's the asset that they help with. So if you're gonna to go to the next level of employee analytics, you need to go, you know, do the reporting history, but just always be seeing what can I do, what can I merge this data with so that I can do more. You know, to solve real business challenges, and if you're from HR, one thing that I would recommend you do, we were at a, um, I was on a panel in San Francisco uh, a week or so ago, and there were a lot of um, uh, recruiting vendors that were there, and they had all this new recruiting software, and they said, okay, what's your number one thing that your recruiting platform is looking to measure? And they said, um, quality of hire, quality of hire, quality of hire, quality of hire. And I was up there and I said, how they performed in the role? And they were like, okay. So one is really kind of an HR measure. Yeah, I got quality of hire. Another one, I mean, who cares if it's a you know, top quality of hire if they end up not doing really well in the role. At the end of the day, I would urge you if you're in HR, and I would urge you regardless of who you are, to be relevant to the business, focus on what the business ROI is, and a business challenge versus solving a marketing challenge or whatever, you've got to solve the business challenge, okay? So in order to have that seat at the table or run the table, you really need to be focusing on solving business problems and also linking it to line of business outcomes. 
And I asked some people that were on the panel, I said, how often do you know um, how your candidates perform that you recommended in there? Do you track that? And it's not their fault, but of course nobody knows, right? Um, so then how can you feel that there's a closed loop to say, I did this right and it worked really well, so let me do that again, or I did it wrong and there's something in there that's not making it you know, be effective. There's no closed loop in terms of that. So we've got a link to LOBA's line of business outcomes, and it sits in a different database. Yes, it does. It sits in sales, where actually the salespeople perform or they don't, and it's tracked in salesforce.com or spreadsheets or whatever it is, or it's tracked in marketing, or it's tracked in the call center, or it's tracked in somewhere else. And so what we need to do, just like with American Express, is start merging those data sets together to go, we did this, we hired these people with this kind of system of record, um, and we combine that with the actual outcome data so you can go with these kinds of things, we combine it with that, what happened, what was the outcome, so that you can begin to work on it. Oh, it's me that advances this. So, kind of take the model like we walked around the city square, let's walk around inside of your um, office building and think about with um, data science, what it really allows you to do and the granularity that you're able to do in terms of the employees that are there. And this is really what you're able to do with workforce analytics that has the closed loop reporting and continues to get better and better as it understands. Hey, we can predict this person would be a top data science in this particular role in this company at this particular time. Okay. That's very relevant, that's a line of business, um, you know, and then you want to track, were they actually a great data scientist? And if not, then we want to, you know, modify slightly. Or can it tell you things like, oh, here's the prediction, you know, the data science and the models that we created said, they're not only going to be a good top engineer, but really put them in that top engineer two position, because there's something about that that they actually connect um, in that specific area. You know, um, this person's probably going to be an average sales rep, you know, and if you stick them in that slot of sales rep, they might go, yay, I got the sales rep job, I'm going to do that. But they know, you know, if you're, I know if I'm not great in a role, it doesn't feel good and you start to feel like, oh, I'm a loser and all that sort of thing. And so it's, you know, you, you kind of want to be put in a role where you're predicted to perform and where you're really valued for what you do, you know, sort of naturally, it's kind of in your DNA. So, you know, yep, prediction, top marketing assistant, another prediction, bottom call center representative, rather than getting them in and onboarding and going through all of that and then flunking out of a class or something, that's a horrible thing to put your person through. It would be great to sort of say, you know, as part of this indicator, we don't think you're fit for this role, but how about for this role? So, I wanted to bring up a new study um, by Deloitte that um, I have the, uh, source down here if you wanted to look it up, um, Global Human Capital Trends 2014. A couple of things that I wanted to mention here, and it's a, a really interesting study. Um, one is HR analytics is inside of the top five global trends. Top five global trends, HR analytics, top five. Somebody said earlier today, what were the other four? I'm like, I don't know, I just zeroed in that it was in the top five, so I don't know, you'll have to read this, okay? But it's got the second, highest, uh, second ca highest capability gap, meaning are people in HR able to do analytics? Um, and they're not, and I think that's actually okay, and I'll tell you why. Um, although people, I, you know, sort of trumpet out there, ah, HR doesn't have analytics capability. Well, if you had to print a, you know, if you had to paint a wall, you probably wouldn't go HR, you know, start painting the wall. You would probably go out and hire somebody to come in and paint the wall. And so for some reason, people have in their ideas, HR, you really should turn into data scientists. And, 
I, I think that's not the best approach. Hire some data scientists, use data scientists from other areas, pull it in. It's a very specific kinds of thing. You don't need to feel bad that you're not, you know, this isn't your thing. 82% of the high-performing companies felt a very urgent need to be working on this. And the reason there's an urgent need is because it's such a high expense for organizations, the people that work there. So they have an urgent need to figure it out because there's a lot of risk riding on how well the employees are going to do in the role. And then 86% of the companies report no analytics capacity in HR, which again I think is fine because there's lots of great consultants and there's data scientists that can do this kind of work. It's the same thing as the kind of work of marketing analytics or customer analytics or voter analytics or anybody else that is just, it's just people analytics really is what people are talking about. I think a lot of things that, I, uh, something else that talent analytics talks about and we get sort of a little frustrated sometimes when we hear some of the uh, firms that say, you know what, HR, you can't really start doing analytics until you get your whole data set in line because you have missing data, you have incomplete data, and we're like, of course, everybody has missing and incomplete data. You can start, you can actually leapfrog, and you can say, what data do we have? And when you start to combine it with some of the other data sets, you can go, but what can we do? Because if you wait for it to be complete, you're, it's never going to happen. Okay. So don't feel like, ah, we've got to get everything all organized or whatever. Again, if you're working with folks internally or wherever, they can work with typically the data that you have. Something that I wanted to put here for some of the folks, and I've met a few of you in here that are doing maybe customer analytics and kind of uh, talk about how employee analytics is exactly the same thing as customer analytics or prisoner analytics or voter analytics or you know patient analytics, people, 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 people. Employees are people too, right? So we can just use the same models for this. So when we talk about with customers, and again, that's, hey, let me give you um, a coupon so that you know I want you to buy something. You know, what they're looking to do with the goal is to, you know, have the customer purchase something um, and purchase a lot and stay with you and not go, ah, I'll purchase from you today, but then somebody else, I'm going to switch brand. You're really trying to get them to stay with the brand. It's the same thing on the employee side when you talk about employee churn, right? You're looking for them to come on board, be very productive, and then not leave because, you know, if you just have to keep hiring, it's a really expensive thing to do. KPIs, um, key performance indicators that they would look at on the customer side would be, well, how many you know, goods did you actually buy? That's a key performance indicator. On the employee side, we look at performance. Are they really performing? Are they earning their way back, providing value to the organization? And how long have they been here? You know, the action for on the customer side, we want to gain a customer. The same thing on, you know, we want to gain an employee. You know, you're trying to uh, hire employees. Churn or attrition is losing a customer, losing an employee. And I'm doing this on purpose to just show you, even though you know the marketing analytics night here was, I think, very packed. The workforce analytics night, I can't believe how many people we got here, and my hat is really off to you. But people are like, workforce analytics, what is it? It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's people analytics. It happens to be inside um, company walls. And the great thing is, and we'll just go through uplift, is let's keep more customers. We're currently keeping this many. Uplift analytic, you know, Uplift says, but how can we try to you know, maintain and get more people? And the same thing, let's keep more employees and have not as many people leave. What's very interesting is this last point. When you're talking about voters, when you're talking about customers, when you're talking about patients, when you're talking about any of these other kinds of people categories, the choice lays mostly with the customer. They can decide to buy or not. When you look at employees, they're, you know, definitely part of this is Google Drive. Sorry about that. 
Um, definitely the employee is saying, yes, I'll work there, or no, I won't work there, but a lot of the choice really comes to the um, person that's hiring you saying, I want to make an offer to your job, and that brings up much more control in a good way of saying, okay, control, we have a lot of data and we can really try to understand what makes people successful here. So it's a huge opportunity for employers. So I love this, uh, I love this um, um, from Dean Abbott, who's a good friend of ours and probably arguably one of the greatest, um, aside of our folks, uh, of course. Uh, predictive modelers in the world, but he said the goal with data science is to identify the interactions that drive the outcomes. I just love the simplicity of that. So you don't need to go, what is it, uh, you know, whatever, right? It's just to identify there's too many things happening with your employees that for a single brain to sit and look at even 10 and look and see, you know, what should the scale be? It's beyond what a single brain or even eight brains can do together. You simply need to have some computing power and some modeling power so that you can go about trying to understand that. And it's the same thing on the workforce, um, you know, using data science uh, with your workforce. This is something that I think we've started to, uh, our chief scientist, uh, Pasha, put this out uh, recently. Um, I think it's called the quantitative scissors, which is a really nice way to, I think it just sounds fun and scary. So what we really have here is, um, okay, there's a, what we're measuring along the y-axis is, you know, how much value is this employee uh, giving you? Because, you know, you're being hired to provide value to uh, your employer. That's why they're hiring you. And then a lot of bottom is, you know, how long does it take, you know, tenure and years. This is actually data from one of our clients. Here's one year, here's two years, and there's three years. So when you come on board, what happens is that you, you know, there's a lot, uh, you know, where there's a huge cost, but not a lot of value, okay? Because you're like, oh, I don't know where my desk is, I don't, you know, I need to get my business cards, I'm doing learning, 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 I'm going through training, which is what you need to do. There's a lot of onboarding and that sort of thing that's going on, okay? And then, you know, it's heavily loaded towards a lot of care and feeding, but at some point that levels out. And then you have your standard cost, which would be your benefits, your salary, that sort of thing. It's very predictive at, at some point. And so that's really what you're gonna, your cost is going to be going forward. So the, what we're measuring here is the benefit and the value that you start providing. And so what, what you really need to do in your organization or what we do with customers is first of all, for a role, a sales role, a customer service role, an engineer role, a bank teller, personal banker, whatever it might be, is to try to figure out, you know, what, you know, this is when all of a sudden that person is, is providing more value than they're costing but they still haven't paid back everything that you know, has, been, has, has cost the company money. And so what happens is you know, it goes on for a while until here's the place where finally, and look at this for one of our, this was for uh, bank tellers. Almost at two years it took them till they finally had paid back all of the costs that it had been put into you know, training them, putting them you know, on the job, et cetera, et cetera, at that point is when finally they were you know, paying back essentially the value to the organization. This alone, being able to calculate this, um, is huge insight. And you can't get this just by looking at that HR system of record. You've start to, you know, got to start to be tying it to some of the other things that are there. So this is an actual um, assignment that, um, that we worked on really visualizing the churn problem. Because what we have here is each of these little lines is an employee. Okay, and what we're doing is tracking when they started and when they left on the roll. 
And so what you see is, you know, if we're looking at that year and a half or whatever that it takes, the red ones are the ones that started and stopped. People like this, they were there just for lunch and then it looks like they left. Um, these are people, you know, started and stopped, started and stopped. Now, what we have about the people in red is the, you know, day they began and the day they left and their performance while they were on the job. So that's the data set that we have with those people. So that's a really great data set. What we have for the people in blue is we have their start date, but we don't have their end date because so we don't know, you know, when they're going to leave and we're like, you know, when is that going to be? Um, so we kind of have an incomplete data set because here we are today and we don't know when these people are going to leave. So if we start to do analytics on them, there's going to be some missing pieces. So what people want to do is today say, I need to start working on this now and measuring some of the things so that I can begin to predict what's going to happen and how long they need to be here so that we can focus on how, they, how long they need to be here so that they have value. Another way to look at this is putting all of those same employees okay, up against a wall. okay. And we're saying, let's look at here the, the, you know, the break-even point just for when they finally are bringing more value than what they cost. And then the cumulative break-even when they've paid back everything. So they have an attrition problem, okay? No kidding, huh? Look at all of the people that are leaving before they ever even pay their value back. They're nothing but cost. This is an extraordinary slide. This is real. And this is not unusual. And so when you're able to start mixing these data sets and pulling them together to say what's happening, I will tell you hiring changes in a heartbeat. And you're all over it, you, you, know, you can present this and you know, if HR or the workforce folks are able to present this back to their CFO and say, look what's happening with hiring, I guarantee you they'll say, oh my goodness, whoever presents this, you run the table. You're really showing us great data. Yep. Yeah, so what you're presenting here are the symptoms. Where where, where do you start to get to the underlying root causes and how to solve for those? Yep, hang in there with me, okay. we get there. Yep, because I'm kind of easing up to what are the you know, different data sets that we pull together. The first thing to do is to visualize what it is today. Because when you do data science, what you really want to do is say, well, what is it today? Because we could come back and create models and go, da-da, we fixed it. And then they'll like, is that better than what we had or worse? I can't tell. So the first thing you really need to do is to help the customer get to the point to say, what is it today? And then that kind of draws a line in the sand to say we need to do better than that with the data science. Yes? And while you're speaking, actually, if you get to, um, in the beginning you had mentioned it was almost like a, a real-time ability for certain systems to respond to changes. Uh, and I work in an HR department where, you know, I would say from that one-year period to about six months later, it's taking us that entire period just to evaluate the performance, right. get the information in the system. And, and so all of a sudden, the, the, the view that we have is, is three months old by the time we're actually right. you know, working with the data and doing something about it. Right, so. right. Do you remember what I said about the real-time system? Posh, I'm just asking our chief scientist, because I don't remember what I said about that, but I want to make sure I get it maybe, right. Maybe just to say, um, kind of, I guess I would think of the Amazon example that Yep. Right. Yep. It's now taking information about my feedback and, and it's putting it into a new model that's that's real time. Ah, I know what you mean. Right. So you're taking the outcome and you're feeding it back in. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or, or yeah. In, in my example, it would be managers are, are changing their evaluation in real time. Right. right? And, and so people are overperforming, underperforming, separating, coming, going. Right. Well, the interesting thing is manager evaluations. Those are really interesting to us, but they're very subjective, and we always use them if the customer wants us to, but. 
I could potentially rate you and say you're great, and the same person looking at you saying you're not so great. And so what we like to do is include those ratings, but also try to look for other performance things you know, where we can to kind of validate and go, ah, the manager's way off, or, you know, or, or that doesn't collaborate this, or whatever. So is it a real-time feedback? Um, typically what we do on the models, because you need to let them uh, go, um, there are a couple of things. You need to let them go long enough so that enough data happens so that you can update the models. On things like with uh, Amazon, and they talk about with um, uh, big data, there's volume, velocity, and one other V that I'm not remembering. That it's veracity, variety, right, exactly. And so on the um, employee side, unless you're going out and sort of scrubbing their you know, social media data and looking to see their Twitter feed and pulling that in, you're not going to have the velocity that you have with big data because they're you know moving around but it's going to take a while and then you get a new manager and then you do this you're not just you're not just generating enough um, for it to be a real-time feed but what you do want to do is go back in there whether it's monthly or whether it's you know quarterly or whatever it is enough time to let your models do their work so it's not as much real time but you, it doesn't make sense kind of real time um, in a in an employee uh, scenario it does when you're talking about consumer data Yeah, absolutely. We do the different one, and you will see them be different depending on the role. So this would not be everybody at your organization. This would be for a specific, a specific role. Um, and definitely, what you'll see is that you know better. And this can inform. Okay, what are we doing on the onboarding side? Or you know, okay, we're doing X amount of weeks of training. Maybe we should you know pull this back, um, etc. But so that will affect it, but it's not going to affect it as much as actually the people that are in the role and how well they actually do. Because some people get tons of training, they still don't do well in terms of performance. So we like trying to affect things like onboarding and training and that sort of thing. But we really, um, there, there's sort of two mindset. One mindset is let's, let's move everything around the person in the role to try to make it perfect for them. Um, and we want to all strive towards that. Um, our mentality is that it's an imperfect world. And despite that, there's people that do really well. And so why don't we look at the people that are in an imperfect world inside of your organization doing extremely well, despite a horrible manager, bad training, bad benefits, bad paycheck, I mean, I'm making it miserable, there's still people that are very successful. So let's look at those people and go, who are they? And they're doing really well according to your performance criteria, and then model those as well as modeling the bottom performers as well. And so, Pasha, did you want to add anything else about um, to that? Okay. Um, does that help? Yes. Okay. All right. So this is real client data. Again, this is Teller uh, performance that we see. And you can see, again, we're looking at how many years that you have here. Three, you know, this is the break-even point, the cumulative break-even, when they finally paid back all of the costs that's gone back to them. And for the number of folks that are here, you can see um, how many come out the other side that are finally um, making money bank, uh, back for this happens to be a bank um, and actually being valuable in the role. 
And I think this is something that usually when we see it, people are like, are you kidding? Yeah, it might be bad at our place, not that bad. And maybe it's not, I don't know. But I think a lot of people don't know what these are and what your costs are and what your ratios in terms of at what point, like, you know, in a call center, they know that for every additional day they're able to keep a call center rep on the job, they make X amount of, you know, X amount of money. They've got to get them past this certain amount so that they can make money back for that. And that's not the only thing I understand that, but it really is, at the end of the day, you want the business to stay alive so that they can give you a job. And so it's, it's really the reason that the business is there. So I wanted to talk just briefly about a contact center or a call center um, case study um, without getting in, in depth. But this is literally the process that we go through that I think should help you understand some of what we do. Um, you get this big smiley face typically when you know they're like, hey, come work for a call center. Um, and um, in this particular case study, this was a financial services call center. They were hiring thousands of people a month, and they had thousands of call center reps across the country. And they had a huge piece of attrition, and there was one specifically um, where they, uh, they trained them for 12 weeks here before they could even take the first call. They would train them for 12 weeks, and the reason that they had to train them for 12 weeks, there was a big catch. They couldn't go on the phone because they were discussing financial services. They couldn't go on the phone until they had passed what's called a Series 7 exam. Okay? If they went all the way through the training and they didn't pass, they would fire them. So they had carried them cost, 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 cost all the way in, right? And then they'd fire them if they didn't pass. And they had such a huge, and I'm going to walk through what literally was happening. And when we started to look at the data and we were able to map out for them, this is what is happening for you and your team. So they started out in classes of 80 or 100 hires, okay? So to hire 80 or 100 people, just imagine how many people or candidates they had to talk to, probably 300, you know, 240, 300, something like that. So imagine the time and the cost and the expense of getting it down to 80 people, okay? The 80 people show up and what we're really trying to do is get them to here where they can start answering the phones and earning their value back, okay? So they start going through the training, very well done training. And what happened is that 20% of the people just bailed out along the way. Nah, I'm not showing up. And they just wouldn't show up. And they're like, where'd they go? I don't know. I got them on the payroll. I sent them up for benefits. I did all of this and that or whatever. Boom, gone. No idea what happened there. So 16 people just randomly dropped out. No reason. Don't understand why. Um, so you're like, okay, well, you know, I have still a certain amount of people left that make it all the way to taking the Series 7 exam. What happens? 33% of the people failed their Series 7 exam. So you had another 26 CSRs. Now this is just for one class. They would hire in classes of 80 or 100. And you might have five, six classes a day or a week that were starting and starting to go through the training. They just were chunking people through training, through training, through training. Okay? So you, at this point, have, you know, 53% of the people that have now, you know, are not going to be okay in this role. And this is happening every week. Okay? So you end up with 47% of the people, or 38 uh, customer service reps out of the original 80 that can even land on the phone. And our particular assignment in this case was to just to help to predict who's gonna be someone that can pass their Series 7 exam, okay? It's a different problem to predict once they're on the job, you know, are they gonna be successful? And we would look at different success metrics if we had to do that. So, this is really bad, okay? Because you think about all the people that they turned down that maybe would have been good at this or maybe not, but there's really something going on with this. And if you would have lined up and looked at, you know, the attrition model and some of the attrition problems that I've shown on the prior screens, it would look very similar to what was happening here. This is a really big problem. However, 
The great news about this is that it's a really big contact center, which means to us a lot of really big data that's there. Not classically big data, but there's a ton of data that we can study. There's all kinds of interactions happening that's going on there. There's outcome data like, you know, how many calls did they take or, you know, all that sort of thing that we can combine with that system of record data, all of the HR data to see what's going on. But it's just like on this slide where there's all these different interactions going on. It's really difficult to try to figure it out as an individual. So, essentially what we showed them is that, you know, there's a 47% chance of somebody being able to, um, of the people that they hire, they have less than a coin flip likelihood of making it all the way through um, being able to take a single call. So it would have been better for them to just say coin flip, you're in, coin flip, you're not, and actually save all the, you know, recruiting money or whatever. So what happens a lot of times when we point this out is people will go, oh, you know, we really have to have you work with us on a data science approach. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And, you know, we start modeling and we come back and we go, okay, we can beat what you're currently doing today. Your models, we can really do that. Um, maybe we can do it with a 62% chance. And they're like, ah, oh, that's horrible. I want you to be close to 100%. And we're like, oh, really? You're doing less than a coin flip today. We can bring it up to 62%. That's unbelievable. And you don't want it to be 100% because you know, we're measuring a lot of things, but we're humans. And there's lots of fun things in there that we don't know. So what's great when you're looking at positions where you have either very high value or high volume individuals is that you have that big data set. And a little predictive lift will help a lot. We're working with a customer service center now, and they say 1%. If you can increase, you know, decrease my attrition by 1%, I'm going to be the biggest hero ever. 1%. They have 70,000 call center reps. Okay. So in this case, really, you know, you might be thinking, what is it? Is it the training? Is it whatever? Blah, blah, blah. No. Passing the Series 7 exam is really a function of the people taking the exam. Yes, it might be the training, or maybe it's too cold, or you need better food, or whatever it is. But, you know, and in some cases, they'll say, well, maybe we'll get tutors for them. And it's like, well, great. They'll pass the exam, and then they'll get on the floor, and then you're going to need a tutor to help them to be a call center rep. No, 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 no. No babysitting. There's people that are being successful in this today. Let's model that and look from that. So. What data yields, and this gets to, I think, some of the questions, you know, when we do these kinds of assignments um, in workforce analytics, what are the data sets that tend to yield really high value? And they could be distributed all over the place. They can be in spreadsheets. They can be in multiple systems. They can be missing data. They can be whatever. Um, so the first thing we definitely want to include is the employee data, the HR data, the traditional HR data. When were they hired? What are they paid? you know, um, maybe a performance review that like you talked about. But in many cases, like with the call center data, they're tracking tons of other data, like how many, you know, calls you make and, you know, how many customer, um, you know, uh, recommendations you get and, you know, what your call quality scores are. And there's a million things that they're, uh, that they're tracking. So, you know, in terms of value, it starts to build some value, but it's really all the way over on the left. Now we put in outcome data. Remember the assignment here is to predict people that are gonna pass the series seven exam, okay? And so what we're measuring is outcomes of the people today, of the employees today, um, of people, you know, did they complete the training? Did they miss class? Did they pass their exam? What was their passing score, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the outcome data that I talked about. So again, you start to have the value kind of go up the value chain here. Now there's something I haven't talked a lot about, but on the customer side and the patient data side, I mentioned it a little bit with getting a mortgage, 
they would go, huh, you know, we have some data about Greta's, you know, banking relationship, but let's go out and actually fill in some incomplete data that we have and let's license that from another organization that's out there so that we can, uh, you know, license some of that data. So you can try to do that, and some people do by using big data to go out and, again, scrape out their, you know, LinkedIn profile and what they're saying on Twitter and all that sort of thing. The great thing about employees is you can ask them, okay? It's so much less expensive. You get to ask them, and we happen to have something that um, you know, sends a questionnaire out, very quickly asks them some questions, pull the data back in, and it's used all the time with customer marketing and customer analytics. They call it personas. Are you the kind of you know, customer that is likely to buy on the spot? Um, are you the kind of customer that sticks with a brand? Are you, and so what they do is they come up with this, these kinds of personas that give you something very interesting to tell you about a group of people. We can measure that directly with employees because what we're able to say is, can you just complete this short questionnaire, fill it out, we have the ability to, to hold on to that. And that really helps to fill in the gaps of any incomplete or missing data that would be there. And this is where you get the highest value. Um, you know, and yes, it is some pulling data from different areas, but that's really how you pull it together. Just in terms of what is this raw talent data or what is the persona data that we measure, just an example that I have on this. Um, first of all, like I said, it's an easy way to augment your employee data set if you don't have you know, complete data there. It's just 11, uh, 11 things that we measure and it allows you to quantitatively in a standardized way understand the people inside of your organization. And it turns out it's highly predictive, which is really the thing that you care about. Um, what we're showing here is as an example, I think Vishal or Sachin mentioned um, the work we've done with data scientists and the research that we've done on what do they have in common? Can we come up with a, you know, a unique fingerprint or thumbprint about um, data scientists? One thing we measure is how intellectually curious people are. And what you can see, this is actually from our study, you know, the closer you are to 100, the more intellectually curious you are. And it's just really, you can't deny it. I mean, you know, data scientists are intellectually curious. I mean, you can just see, this is a bell chart bell graph and you can just see it's all over to the right hand side and that's the kind of thing that we do in measuring these different elements or persona data inside of employees. The other thing that you want to do and I think this gets to your question this is the methodology that we use where you know the first thing that you would have is okay you know what data do you have there let's talk about that and what business problem are you trying to solve let's prepare the data, let's create some models, let's come back and say, do our models make sense, right? Because we're not just gonna implement them, but go, do they make sense? I don't know, do they? Oh, we need to tweak them, we need to go back. And then you go back and you keep going back until you get it right, and then you deploy it, okay? But at the same time, outcomes start to happen, and maybe it's a review, maybe it's you know, your call center, you know, how many people are you know, recommending this or that or whatever, maybe you get your new sales data in, so you decide, is it a quarter, is it a month, whatever, let's go back, or eight months. You know, you've got to give your models time to run and people to perform and actually be performers inside of the role. And so what you want to do, and what we typically do, is use this methodology. And then what we also do is hold aside, and this is where the excitement comes, and we're like, come on, we've done all of this work, we pulled these three kinds of data together. And then what we typically do is hold aside some people in our sample. Maybe we're working with a couple thousand people and we'll hold aside 400 people. And we don't know their outcomes. Let's say it's call centers. We don't know their outcomes. We don't know, you know, their, you know, their attrition, whether they're still there or not. And what we do is we say, we want to be able to predict those outcomes and see how well we do, okay? Based on the models that we've created. That's where at the end of the day, 
you know, we say our models are working or they're not. And we do extremely well, and if you are using workforce analytics, you want to be working with an organization that says prove it. Prove it based on people that we know nothing about, but we also already have outcome data so we can say, are our models working or not? Okay, we tracked this one, this particular thing, over eight months, and then that's when we went back in. And of course, we were watching it daily. What's happening? What's going on? Because we're curious. But you've got to give enough time, just like with stocks and that sort of thing, to perform. So here's what happened. The data science results over uh, eight months in this one particular uh, conversation. They were screening 952 people that came in for this one particular role. Of those 952, 270 were put through and said, yep, we're going to accept those and 682 were rejected, based on our models, but also people going, eh, I don't like you, or I do, or whatever it is. So the other thing to understand is when you put models in place and you use data science, it doesn't mean that people go away and you just like, oh, let's just let it run making a decision. You still have, and you need actually the oversight from the people there going, you know, let's, let's you know, use our intuition or you know, include what their experience and background and other things that really matter to you. So of the 270, that they said, we're going to hire you, 173, our model said, yeah, thumbs up, um, we like those. And 97, our model rejected and said, you went ahead and hired them anyway, um, but our model rejected that. And that's fine, because that gives us really great data to go back and look at the people that our model rejected and say, how, you know, did they do well, did they not do well, et cetera. So what happened? Because again, we care about outcomes. And this is how we go back to our client and say, you know, how'd we do? You know, if we're not if we're not sending it in the right direction, then um, we shouldn't be doing this job. So, the good news is that those predicted to pass the exam increased. So it increased from 47% um, completing the exam to 59%. So before the analysis began, they were at a solid 40%. We increased it to 59%. That's a really big deal. Okay. And what this nets out to is you, you know, exponentially, just given the volume that they're hiring, it's millions of dollars a month, uh, a year. Now, this was interesting, but really what we also wanted to do, in addition, was to, um, it wasn't our only goal. We also wanted to find people that weren't going to pass the exam, because you can attach it from, attack it from both sides, right? And we'd be really missing if we didn't scrub out the people and weed those out. So, kind of close, but no cigar here. So... What we saw here on the people, those predicted to fail, decreased. So it decreased from 49% to 35%, which is a really big deal. And those are absolutely, it's not an HR goal, it's not quality of hire, it's what's absolutely happening on the job, it's the outcome, okay? Um, what this meant is that this adds up very rapidly to actual ROI. Had a, uh, hopefully a customer today say, I've got to find $2.6 million somewhere in my budget. And then we continue to talk and he said, oh, you know, attrition for our global sales force is just, it's horrendous. And I'm like, okay, well, I think we can find your $2.6 million with your sales force. Yes. That wasn't, yeah, the question was, do some of the firms um, that use a Series 7, do they do a mock Series 7? We haven't run into that. No, it's interesting, though. That could be a way. Well, but they wouldn't be qualified until they went through the training. So they could do a mock one then, and then. But then what would you do? Decide, I'm going to train them for another 12 weeks? 
but they're interesting questions, right? We do the same we do the same thing, you know, to try to figure out. But you really need to go through the training to learn everything so that you could pass it. But it's an, right because you wouldn't know it when you just hired it. You know, when they hired them, you know, take the exam. You have to go through training because it's pretty complex stuff to learn. So this adds up extremely fast. You have 11% more employees passing the exam um, per year, 14% less employees not passing per year. Again, like we were saying, one of our existing clients says, if you can move it by 1%. Um, and so this is worth several million dollars, like real dollars to them. This isn't fake dollars. This is real dollars directly to the bottom line. So I talk about, um, uh, you know, the goal here with data science is not to be right 100% of the time. And we like to bring this up because I think people think, ooh, it's magic, we're gonna be able to, you know, predictive dust and we're gonna be able to say, eh, I can tell with 100% accuracy. You know, sometimes they give me, I'm a vegetarian and sometimes I get a, uh, you know, something for me. And I'm like, where did that come from, right? They have, it must be, you know, my husband or my family or whatever they're, you know, my data is getting messed up here. So it's not 100% of the time. So the goal is not to be right 100% of the time, but really in a way it's to lose as little as possible when you're wrong, okay? And to move that needle as much as you can. And everything depends on employee costs. You've got to understand the costs and the benefit of your employees and how they're contributing. Um, one thing we like to ask and we like to help our customers calculate is on the hiring side. Um, it's very much like credit scoring. Um, you know, one bad loan that you give away very often wipes away three bad, you know, three great loans that you give away and you're like, ah, so you really need to focus on not giving bad loans because that can wipe away uh, so much of the good work that you're doing and to really come up with what is your ratio on hiring. Does one bad hire get rid of all of the, you know, value of three good hires? And when you start to calculate that and really understand your cost and your value, it changes your hiring and it changes how you value your employees. Um, immediately. So just a suggestion of, you know, even starting to work on knowing what your cost ratios are. I think that's the last slide, um, with the exception of the main points, which is, you know, really focus, workforce analytics need to focus on ROI that shareholders value. Um, all of us, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in wherever you are, engineering, etc., it's the value that shareholders value. Perfect data is an illusion. Don't wait. It's never going to be perfect, and you'll just be waiting for perfect data. And you're, you, you know, you can begin to make progress now. Um, employee attrition is extraordinarily expensive, but it's also preventative. You know, preventable. You really can work on it. Um, and use your relative cost to focus on what's the most important things. A lot of times, people are like, "I've got to get top performers in here." I hear that all the time, and you're like, "Are they costing you the most, or is it your bottom performers?" So use your cost to help you figure out what you should really be focused on. Um, performance and attrition are related. Sometimes when we start, people are like, ah, I have an attrition problem. Other people say, oh, I have a performance problem. And so we're like, they are different, but they're actually very related. And once you start working on one, you'll see how it's actually related to the other. And a little prediction goes a long way. So don't be expecting, you don't want it to be 100% predictable. I know I don't want people to predicting me 100%, but really kind of understanding that and moving the needle, I think is really the goal that we have. And, what I wanted to do, well, A, is just to thank you to take any questions that you have, but I do have my uh, information here. If you would like a copy of the presentation, and then we also have an additional um, attrition article, just uh, come up and hand me your card. Just write on the back what you'd want. If you want one or the other or both, just write both, and then uh, we'll get that out to you. So if we have a few minutes, I'm happy to take any questions. Stephen? Thank you so much. Sure. 
discussion. So when you look at workforce analytics and people analytics in general, where are you, uh, where do you see the most exciting work being done? And, um, uh, and, and where would you view your role in, in, in terms of that, that ecosystem of people or workforce analytics? Yep, so the question was, thank you. Um, you know, as we're out there, what's kind of the most exciting areas? And for us, I think the most exciting areas is really uh, reducing attrition um, and increasing performance. And whether, so we do a lot, like I said, with, um, um, you know, call centers and sales reps and engineers and data scientists and all that sort of thing. But these huge areas where they're just bleeding money, if we can just stem that. So what our particular role is, is in kind of the things that I described, which is helping them to, first of all, quantify where are they today, setting, you know, a target, let's do better than that, and seeing if we can pull all the data together and, um, you know, create a different model that will do better for them. So the thrill for us is making a real impact on businesses and saving or making them a lot of money. Um, yes? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I know those exactly, actually. The question was, you know, to the extent we can say, what were the characteristics of people passing a Series 7 exam? Um, Series 7 exam is hard. And a lot of people, when they're marketing to, hey, be a call center rep, you can come in, you can talk to people, it'll be fun, you'll have your own thing, maybe you can do your own, you know, you, know, you can pick your own hours, all that sort of thing. And they're like, great, I like to talk to people, this will be great. The Series 7 exam is hard. And one thing that we noticed is, and we saw this in the data, is that people were actually hiring um, uh, a couple of things. Um, the people that were passing the exams are actually the same, one of the same things we saw in data scientists, which a lot of intellectual curiosity. They would do the reading if they had 12 weeks of class. They were not just coming to class, but at night they were studying over it and they were like, you're kidding me, you're gonna pay me to come and get Series 7 certified, and I get to have that over at the end of my name, that is unbelievable. And they were so excited that they can do that versus what a drag I need to get through this training um, just so that I can finally just sit and answer questions from people. And so that, uh, we call it a theoretical score, but that was one thing that was a huge indicator in combination with a lot of other things. The other thing that we saw is that top performers ended up being people that actually weren't all that friendly because the friendly people, um, 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 extended the talk times, right? They were talkers, they weren't listeners. And so they extended the talk times, and so that needed to be fed back to the HR people and the recruiters that were hiring, and they were going, oh, you'll be great on the phone. And it, you wouldn't have gotten to that without the data to go, oh, no kidding. Okay, they extend, and they get lonely in a little booth sitting there in a call center thing by themselves, okay? So they were hiring really the opposite of, in many ways, of what you needed to do. You don't want them to be super grumpy, but you know, you want them to be asking the questions, but mostly you want, like Mike, no, I'm kidding. Um, you know, you mostly want them to be listening, probing for the questions and being very specific. The other one was very process oriented and also very detailed. So those are some of the other things. Not too nice, you want them to be nice, but not too nice, because then they spend too much time, et cetera. So, but there's, you know, all kind, you know, again, it looks like that cluster of all things that interact together. So you've got to really dial up and exactly dial down where you need that to be, but those are some of them. Question behind you. Okay. Um, thank you for that information. Sure. Good. 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 Good.
Right, and right. That, that concerns me. Like, right. Because there's people who are complicated, people who surprise you. Yep. So is that built into this analysis too? Um, the, um, the scary stuff? You mean? <laughs> Um, I think I think the chance of uh, somebody said to me actually a really famous person said to me uh, oh, oh Greta so you can tell if people are motivated and I was like I can tell what they're motivated by because I think everybody's motivated by something so to think that there's a breed of person out there that is useless for any role in the world I think that you know if we just predict enough and get really good at it we can go Greta's going to be useless at everything in the world. I don't think that day is going to happen. There's so much, which is why I said maybe to 62%, I'm able to say that your outcome is going to be this. So do I think that's going to happen? No, I think it's a lovely thing that people are very complicated. And we always include, like I said, you know, other things that are in there. And we see people that are different, right? Just like in, uh, you know, you brought it up. This literally is Moneyball. It's exactly Moneyball. The things that they were used to looking for it's just so extraordinarily difficult to pull all these different things together. So we're advancing. Humans will continue to be complicated in a beautiful way that I love. And I think it's actually very respectful. I want to be valued for what I do really well versus try to be in a role where I'm pretending and going, oh, I hope they don't find out, which is really what's happening, and trying to be retrained into another role and retrained. And I'm like, I'll do it, but I hate it. So no, I don't think it's going to happen. It doesn't scare me at all. I'm also a person, by the way. So I don't mind this being done on me. Yes. Uh, this is great. A lot of the examples come from large companies. Yep. 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 What would you recommend to a small company if they come to thirty people yep. and wants to yeah, it's a great question. The question was, what about in smaller organizations? Well, certainly, you know, there it's more difficult when you don't have a huge data set. But the other thing that you can do is just start measuring the people, especially around the persona stuff today. So, you know, there are going to be people, even if you just have two sales reps or one sales rep, that sales rep might end up leaving. Don't you wish that you had information on him or her so that when you go to hire somebody, you can go, we don't want to do that again, so that you can compare. So even if today you can't get a lot of value, start collecting it so that, and, and you know, like we showed, you have to start at some point and you have to start pulling it together. So even if your optimal scores are, um, and it's not as predictive as if you have a large data set, but even if your optimal scores are, I want you know, somebody just like Greta, at least you have a quantitative way of understanding what the persona is that I have so that you can go and look for that. So um, you can absolutely do, again, it's, if it's a continuum, it's not all the way over here, but it doesn't need to be all the way over here either. either. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, Vishal. So, uh, can you use it uh, for vendors? For, for um, could you look at for chat? Um, not with us particularly, but if you wanted to, you know, if you had a, you know, data set. I actually used to work for a company that did that weirdly called Open Ratings, and what we actually did um, prior to uh, um, Talent Analytics was we pulled in tons of data from like Dun and Bradstreet and all sorts of other things. They're spending, what they were doing on their banks, you know, if they took out a loan, if they defaulted, if there was a lien, all that sort of thing, so that we could actually make a prediction to, let's say, General Motors that had a huge vendor and we could, you know, give them maybe three, four, five, six months warning that something weird is going on. So we wouldn't particularly do that, but that's certainly something that analytics could do. Another question?
Yeah, it's a great question. The question was, you know, we, we use a lot of examples of sales reps and tellers and all that sort of thing where it's very easy to quantify what their outcomes are. And there's a reason we stick with those because it's very easy to quantify what their outcomes are. When we did the data science research and we had a conversation yesterday, um, somebody said, well, how do you measure data science, you know, a data scientist outcome? And we're like, sort of ironic, isn't it? Because they're the most quantitative people but what do you, you know, and we tried when we did the research asking questions around how often your models are used and what would your customers rate you in terms of, you know, do you deliver on time? And everybody was like, yeah, I'm way above average. And we're like, okay, that didn't work. So you use, you use what you have. And so even if it comes down to saying, let's have a manager, maybe have eight managers, rate them on these, you know, four or five different things, you know, so use that. Or maybe it's their performance reviews or anything that you have. And so literally, you know, if we would, you know, when we work with people, we look for absolutely anything we can get our hands on because the outcomes are so important. Any other questions? Yes. Do you see a particular customer in your customers that they're starting to that they're starting to climb the learning curve. Uh, learning curve and just list themselves for your, you know, and then they get into your business. Yep. Um, at some point, you know, they 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 want to try to figure out how to do some of this themselves, or at least monitor. We love when our customers do it themselves. Actually, we do. So there's some customers we do everything for. Um, but what we love to do is do, you know, either if they have an analytics team, and they're like just teach us what algorithms work and what your methodology is and that sort of thing and maybe on the first assignment you know we can work and just be part of the team and then the next assignment they kind of run with it there's still a piece inside of our you know that measures kind of that persona that they can continue to run with and use but no they're good to go so we can do everything or we can do nothing you can just kind of use our data for that and we're happy for any of those relationships we like working alongside uh, existing data scientists that are there did that answer your question yeah I was just kind of curious what was uh, around what was being most effective in changing it. Okay. So, you know, you can give them a model. What, how do they implement it? Are they, ah, they have the infrastructure ready? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question I didn't bring up. So the question really was, how do they implement it? Let's say we go into wherever we did this and we're like, great, we found it. Okay, goodbye. Right? What's that? And monitor. And monitor, exactly. And that's the great point. I'm really glad you, you brought that up. Part of what our solution does, we first of all create the model, but then the other thing, once we have the model, because that's the data scientists, people saying we created that then, how do you deploy it? Because HR now, or line of business people are the ones doing the hiring now, if you're using it for hiring. So you're like, how do you transfer the model over to here so they can use it? So that's what we have as a model deployment platform. You literally just pull it up into our software and it turns into a tool that HR or people that are hiring can use where you compare the candidates now to the optimized model that we have. It instantly grades them and says, you're a 38% you know, match. Here are the gaps that are here and it generates behavioral interview questions. So that that's a tool that can be used really beautifully by HR or line of business people or whatever to do that. So then what we do is we watch their outcomes, right? We run it back, we redo the models and see is there any change and do we learn anything with the additional data and if so, we tweak the model. And so the more outcome data we continue to get, you're kind of tweaking at that point, but that's what you wanna to do to operationalize it so it continues to run like that. 
um, and your models get better, just like on customer analytics, you're constantly, did Greta buy the ink? Did she not buy the ink? You feed that back in. So you have to operationalize it. I'm really glad you, point, you pulled that out. That's great. And that's part of the value that we do. Great question. Thank you. Yes? Uh, question was, are there any legal constraints um, for the data you can use for their models? Absolutely. Um, that's, you know, the things that we measure ourselves are, there's nothing illegal about them, so the things we measure are fine. Um, we will definitely, with some of our um, clients, say, I wouldn't put that in there if I were you. You don't even want to know. You're like, you don't want to know, you don't want to get that in your head, leave that out. And so, again, we tend to look at regular, you know, um, when you were hired, all that sort of thing, but we don't look at even gender, we don't look at race, age, any of those sorts of things that would be protected information. So if they want to do it on their own on another time, that's up to them, but no, we don't touch that. And you don't need to, to get the kind of results that you're working on. Question? Well, you do need to use race, gender, and age to make sure you're not having an adverse impact. Yep. Because you need to test that on the final yep. model. Yep, absolutely. It's a really good point that you need to test to make sure you're not having an adverse impact, right? Right, and we do that actually with our instruments before we even created them, so we've um, gotten that working. But yeah, do we want to see if a certain race or age or whatever is over, you know, performing? So we go, oh, we'll just hire 54-year-olds. You know, you probably don't want to go into that sort of thing. That's a great point. Anything else? I don't want to overstay my welcome. I think pizza is coming probably. Pizza is here, so I think it's a great time. Thank you very much, and if you'd like anything. You can